Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we talk to the debut novelist Cecile Pinn, whose literary novel Wandering Souls was just longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. In this conversation, we talk to Cecile about her journey of writing the book she never thought would see the light of day. We talk about her choices, how she decided to use a fragmented structure, why she chose to have multiple narrators, and how she researched a book and made sure she looked after herself while researching heavy topics. We also ask her why she chose to fictionalise a story that was inspired by her mother's past. Cecile worked in publishing and we asked her about that experience and she gives us advice on what she thinks all first-time authors should know. Cecile has written a wonderful multi-layered story and she was a lovely guest to speak to and learn from. Without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Cecile Pinn. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month, we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Cecile, welcome to the London Writers Salon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for, for attending. I'm really excited to talk to you all. We are so excited to be celebrating with you today. And we'd like to kick off with a question about a little bit earlier in your life. What was your earliest writing memory? I remember, I think school assignments, I had to do creative writing at school. So I didn't, I didn't really write in English. I didn't speak English or anything until I was nine. So my earliest writing memories are in French, just sort of writing very bad poems for my dad when I was like five with lots of spelling mistakes and then like short stories about like the tooth fairy as well and kind of mythical animals for school when I was maybe like eight or so so yeah it's been kind of a long long journey <laughs> from there to to wondering so it's amazing we can't wait to dig into it so you mentioned writing in French so you grew up in France and I think it was age nine you moved to New York and being a multilingual person and writer we're curious how do you feel like that influences or influenced your thinking or maybe even your writing style? I think um, in a way my relationship with the English language is one that's quite defined. And it's I, I'm always very careful when I write in English and meticulous because it's not something that in a way comes naturally to me. I mean, I, I, now it sort of does because I, I, I've done my studies in English. I've, it's been my main language since I'm 18. But I think it's just that uh, whereas my relationship with the French language is much more intuitive in some ways. It's not, it's just my mother tongue. It's the language of my childhood. Whereas I've had to really learn English and I've learned how to, I've had to learn how to adopt that language. So it's a bit different. And also I think that it means that I don't, I didn't grow up with one particular influence. I grew up with, you know, reading French books and growing up in different countries. I think it means that I, and also being Vietnamese, it means that I had 
influences coming from different directions and I didn't really feel tied to one particular style of writing. Did you ever consider writing this book in French? No, because my French isn't very good anymore. I think I make a lot of spelling mistakes in French, which is weird. And I think, again, I I, I did creative writing as a child in French, but I, I don't think that I would be good enough to write a book in French nowadays. Hmm. That's interesting to hear. would love to turn to your work as an editor and writer. And until recently, you worked in publishing. Publishing, obviously, known for high art, but not for high pay. I'm curious about why you chose to work in the industry and why you decided to leave? Sure, yeah. So I, I joined publishing after doing my master's at King's. At first, I had planned to do a PhD. And that was sort of the way I saw myself was um, becoming an, an academic. But then I, I burned out quite badly during my master's. And I realized that maybe it wasn't the way for me and that I, I wanted something a bit more social and with a bit more of a, you know, a nine to five. So then I just applied a bit randomly to the work experience scheme at Penguin Random House and I got in and from then on I got kept as a temp throughout the year so I would do maybe like a six-month contract in the marketing department and then three months in the rights department and so on so I it wasn't something that I always dreamt of joining it sort of happened organically and I you know it kind of fit with my love of reading I also just really liked the people that I worked with which I think was a big part of why I decided to join and work in publishing for a few years I, I you get to work with really interesting and passionate people, whether that's your colleagues or the authors you work with. And I quite like that you get to be creative, especially when you work in marketing, for example, you get to decide like to have a say in how you want to run the campaigns. And when you work in editorial, I just really enjoyed working closely on the text and um, giving some feedback and working closely with the authors. So like, and again, because I wanted to work in academia, I think I've always been interested in writing and working with text in some ways. So that, yeah, publishing kind of fit a lot of my interests. Let's turn to your book. You're now Women's Prize long-listed book, Wandering Souls. <laughs> it's out now. It's coming out in the U.S. I think you said March 21st. Is that right? Yes. So can you tell us about it? What's the premise for those of us who haven't read it? Yeah, so Wandering Souls, it's partly based on my family history. So my my mom was a Vietnamese boat people. She left... Um, she was in Laos at the time. So she left Laos, spent about a year at a refugee camp in Thailand, and then moved to France in the late 70s. And um, while on the journey there, she lost her parents and five of her siblings through sort of unknown circumstances. And so the book is inspired by that event. It follows the siblings and Tan and Min as they leave Vietnam after the war, then spend one, um, some time at a refugee camp in Hong Kong and then settle in the UK during the Margaret Thatcher era, so in the late 70s, early 80s, which is a time of really great societal and political upheaval. And so they're finding themselves coming of age, having to really build new lives for themselves, while also dealing with grief and things that really no child should have to ever deal with. And so through that, I've also included some more nonfiction elements. So I also include some National Archives documents that show, for example, Margaret Thatcher's reaction to the Vietnamese boat people coming to the UK. Some chapters are told to the perspective of Dao, which is one of their diseased little brother. And there's also an unknown narrator from the present day trying to piece together the story of Vietnamese boat people. There we go. Beautifully done. So and we're, we've got questions about all of these things, point of view, your research, all of those good things. Where did the idea for this first begin for you? So I think it came from my family history. 
I think I've always knew I would want to write about it in some way but at first I thought it would probably more in the nonfiction space so I thought I would either do something a, a PhD that would partly deal with um Vietnamese both people or something like that or maybe I would want to write about it in um as a feature piece um you know by interviewing some refugees and and so on but then I think as I gain more confidence and as I start reading more fiction I think I just decided to write a work of fiction and partly I set the book in the UK instead of France as a way to differentiate between real life which I think was important for me first of all mentally I, I think it would have been maybe a bit too taxing to write about my own family history and I wanted and also for the privacy of my my mom and my my uncles I think I wanted characters to be fictional and also working in publishing I realized that there were very few books exploring the the Vietnamese diaspora, but also just the East Southeast Asian diaspora in the UK and in London. And I've been living here for almost 10 years now. So I think I really wanted that population to be seen. So that's why I decided to set the book in the UK as well. That's beautiful. And so you said you thought about it as a features piece, maybe a nonfiction piece. Did you actually start to pursue any of those genres first before you then turned to fiction? Or was it just in your head you were considering those options? Yeah, I think it was all in my head. I think I was doing a lot of research, like looking at the National Archives, looking at news articles, which then ended up filtering through in the book as well, right? So, um, and I was, I it hadn't gone too far, but um, I was asking my mom a few more questions and just, yeah, looking at testimonies online, kind of trying to see the angle that I could take and so on. But I, I think once I started writing, it quickly turned to fiction. I think fiction is more fun as well. So um, I think I was always a bit more attracted to writing fiction. But again, I think I just lacked the confidence for a long time Mm. to do so. Mm. And what did day one look like when you decided, okay, this will be fiction? What were those first words, either in your notebook, on your computer? Where did you start? No, I can't remember. (laughs) I feel like I've blocked it out of my memory. I think I wrote the first chapter quite quickly you know I'm, I'm someone I used to work right at night because I had the full-time job and I think um, there may have been like a couple of glasses of wine involved I can't remember but I think it, I was just at the state when I began I didn't really care and there was no expectations and I was just really writing it for myself so I, I wrote that scene and I think I was interested in writing a dinner scene because it's just a nice way to introduce all the different characters and you know it's kind of a reference to Last Supper and and um it has that kind of still quality to it. So I think I just sort of went for it with no no expectations and just thinking, you know, it was during the pandemic as well. And um, I just went from there, really. Mm. And so that first chapter remained the first chapter throughout that dinner scene. It did with some editing involved. I think at mm. first my characters were, but that's when I started giving, um, I was part of a writing group after I'd written maybe about 5,000 words of part of the London Writers Awards. And the first feedback I was given was that we felt really distant to my characters. And I think part of that is because I was a bit scared to get into the nitty gritty of it. And um, because probably because it was also partly based on my family history and so on. So um, a big part of the editing that I did for draft two was really um, adding some more detail, some more description to the characters, adding dialogue. I really hated writing dialogue <laughs> at first. I don't know why. I just it didn't come naturally to me. So yeah, but the setting and everything and the characters were the same, but it was just about adding more details and more life to it. Mm, great. And can you tell us about the title? It's a beautiful title. And tell us what it means because you educated us 
I didn't know what Wandering Soul was before this. So can you tell us what that is? And also the story of the title, was it something that just came to you instantly or did you arrive at it another way? Yeah, sure. So Wandering Souls is, um, is a reference to Operation Wandering Souls, which was a psychology war operation that the U.S. undertook during the Vietnam War. And it plays on the belief that, that Vietnamese people have that if you don't bury your dead properly in their hometown, then the souls of the people will be left to wander the earth forever as ghosts instead of being able to rest. So what the U.S. Army did during the, the later years of the Vietnam War was that they would play in the forest tape recordings of those gaulish kind of weird airy sounds of supposedly Viet Cong soldiers saying things like, comrades like stop fighting look at me now unable to rest i'm a ghost and which was really creepy and the goal was to mobilize and scare the Viet Cong army so yeah so the book is called wandering soul and it's a reference to that and also it's a reference to the fact that i think a lot of the characters in the book are wandering souls in some way so you've got Dao, of course who's the diseased brother who's now a ghost but the characters as well i think they, they find themselves in London, not really sure what they're supposed to do. They've lost their parents. So I think uh, my aim, at least, was when, that when you read the book, you sort of see the different layers of the connotation of the title and the, all the different characters. Mm. It's a great title. And was it the working title all along or did it arrive later on in the process? Yeah, it actually it was the first title that I came up with and it sticked and my publisher liked it so <laughs> yeah so that was quite smooth <laughs> that process now you've spoken about this book being based on your family history and then you spoke about boundaries how you've set this in the UK rather than France to have some distance and I wonder if there are any other boundaries you put in place whether it's in what you researched or the questions you asked to help keep those boundaries in for you and for your family yeah so I I purposefully didn't ask my mom too many questions about her experience because, again, I wanted the characters to come from me and not from her. And uh, so I would ask her details, like, what were the beds like at the camp or little things like that. But also, I didn't want to, it's, I don't know if she thinks that she really wants to talk about because it it's very difficult. So I, even that, I kept to the minimum and I mostly relied on looking at photos online and descriptions and so on. But um. And uh, for myself, I think it was hard reading and researching online because I would learn about the sexual assault that would happen on, on the boats and the camps and the death and the pirates and very horrible things. So for me, I think I had to put boundaries for myself. And again, I was just coming out from my master's where I burned out already. So I was learning how to be kinder to myself. And I, I was always cautious to see friends at least a couple of times a week when when lockdown was over when lockdown was on I would try to call them at least you know a few times a week like try and get seven hours of sleep if I could you know go to the gym just kind of boring stuff with it which I think is really important to for my mental health and for the mental health of writers in general yeah I'm so glad you did that and your story is set across different time periods so it includes the 70s and 80s to present time and it's also set in different countries because uh, characters in Vietnam then they're in Hong Kong and the UK and I was curious about how you researched those different locations and periods where were you going for your resources what were you watching or listening to yeah so a variety of, of sources I would say it was 
So again, it, because it was the pandemic, I couldn't really go outside, <laughs> like go to libraries or the National Archives. But the British National Archives have a good resource online. So I was able to look at meeting minutes, for example, that Margaret Thatcher had with um, the Prime Minister of Australia, I think, and um, just things that she had said. For example, I learned that she, which is in the book, she had sent a letter to a little Vietnamese boy saying how much she supported and like, you know, was sympathizing with, with the cause and would make sure that they brought us lots of refugees in, but then let her later backtracked and said that she was really reluctant to, to welcome Vietnamese boat people. So there was this kind of archival research going on. And then there's a lot of websites as well that collect um, testimonies from Vietnamese boat people that, that were at the camp in Hong Kong and and Facebook groups as well about people saying like, I was in the Thai Tat camp in 1979 you know, or something. So that I used a lot just for visuals as well, just to description just to see what it was like visually and then there was a BBC documentary that came out while I was writing a book called What Happened to the Vietnamese Boat People which also included some testimonies of people who had come to the UK because there wasn't too much online about British Vietnamese boat people because I think it's a bit of a an unknown history and there is there is a lot more I think written about the Vietnamese American community but I had to I had to do a little bit more work. And then also just for them, for the things, for example, I had to Google like what were the supermarkets that were big in the UK in the, in the 80s. Like there's a part where Anne goes shopping and nowadays she would go shopping at H&M, but I, in the 70s, 80s, it was CNA that was the big store of the time. So I it just, yeah, also just doing that kind of more nitpicky research just to make sure that the book was as accurate as possible. I noticed those details, actually. Mm. I really enjoyed seeing the different <laughs> shops and the landscape was slightly different. So you mentioned that you didn't want to press too hard on your mom's story, but a lot of this seemed to have infused, been infused from your family history. I'm just curious what those conversations with your mom looked like. Did you kind of sit down with her and just ask her a few questions or were these things that you gathered over the years? Mostly things that I've gathered over the years, my mom, and also my mom's in Paris and I'm in the UK. So we don't really, you know, we don't, we're not really able to have like a sit down conversation naturally. I mean, I go back home from time to time, but it was mostly little snippets that I've heard throughout the years. And I think that's something that I wanted to be reflected in the book, that fragmented structure, because that's really how I learned about my family history was um, throughout the years, little things that my mom would tell me or that my uncle's would tell me or then my sisters would tell me and then also through doing my own research about Vietnamese boat people it's not really and I think a lot of, of uh, second generation refugees will understand it they're not really given that story at birth you have to kind of work for it and then my mom yeah we didn't really have a proper sit down I would just kind of she'd be in the kitchen and I'd be like what kind of food did you eat like when, when you like were at the camp or something like that so just to make it a bit more casual. And then when I, when it was clear that I was actually going to write the book, I told her from the start and she was, she was always quite supportive. And I think she said, you know, at least something good is going to come out of it. But I sent her by text a few questions, just forget what the questions were again. I think they were just like, what were the huts like at <laughs> the camp or like, how long did it take you to get from Vietnam to that place? And so on, just to kind of, like how many people were on the boat and so on, just to kind of make sure I had a rough idea of, of uh, what it was actually like. And I wasn't just completely making it up. 
That's great. Thanks for sharing that. How did you think about story structure or did you think about story structure either through the writing of it or through the editing of it? Can you give us any peek into your thoughts around that? It'd be really helpful. Sure. Yeah. I think I knew from the quite early on that I it was going to have a um, kind of fragmented structure with some different narrators and, um, you know, kind of non-fiction-ish part to it. So I, I drew a skeleton of the book, which is basically just I had a rough idea of the, the chapters and I would kind of write like this chapter, they arrive in London, this one, they like go shopping or something like that, which I think was helpful in in getting me a, a rough overall of what the book would be like. And then I wasn't, that was flexible, right? And I think I ended up adding a few more chapters as edits went on and I, I made the narrative thread longer. That was something that my agent and my editor worked quite keen on was that um, I think at first um, the story of Anton and Mint, so the kind of narrative thread was like half of the book but then we worked to make it more about two-thirds of the book again just to make the characters more come alive a bit more and I, I didn't really work on the book chronologically so I would sometimes work on the the ending if I was you know didn't really feel like writing part one which I think part one was probably the most draining to write because it was a lot of research and it's really sad and it's when the family died and so on. So I would sometimes just go and work on the ending a bit, which was fun and quite freeing. And, and I think that's an advice. It's an advice I've given to writers since then, because I think a lot of writers, if they're stuck at a particular place, they don't always, they just, they just, they're just stuck, but it's, I find it that it can be very helpful to just kind of leave that aside and go work on the ending of your book or a different chapter as well. It's mm, great advice. Did you learn story structure anywhere or are there any books or methodologies that you find helpful or have found helpful? Yeah, not no, really. I mean, I haven't, I think I've just read a lot. I don't really read books about writing. I mean, I did like Stephen King's on writing. I love how he says that writing a story is, is like finding a fossil. But really for me, that's what it felt like. I didn't really know what the story would be like besides my rough skeleton until I was really writing and then kind of discovering the characters and finding out what makes sense in the, the structure and the chapters. But um, I love books that play with forms. So I was really inspired by The Right Parts by Maggie Nelson, which is in the epigraph, and then Human Act by Hong Kong, I really like, which is um, um, like my book kind of starts with um, the death of a character. And then you kind of deal with the aftermath of that event. And you've got the, the voice of the deceased person. And then you've got yeah, just different voices that come together. I love Atonement by Ian McEwan, and I was really interested by how he kind of plays with the reader, and, and at the end, you kind of have the writer insert itself into the book and to talk about the kind of the importance of storytelling and so on, which I I really was keen to explore as well. So, um, yeah, so I had lots of kind of different influences from, yeah, from different writers. That's great. And so earlier, you mentioned confidence, and you said you didn't have the confidence earlier on to feel like you would have the chops to write fiction. And I'm curious, what helped you gain that confidence? I think I'm, I'm still not the most confident person. I think, I mean, you know, I still have so many doubts about my writing, of course, but I think... I think that just means you're a writer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it would be weird if I just was like, my book is amazing. No, I think joining publishing, I was able to see the industry and the book publishing business in a more objective way. And I just focused on the fact that I knew there was a gap in the market for the story that I wanted to tell and that there was growing interest in it. So even when I felt really quite bad about my writing and things, I would just 
put my little publishing hat on and say, yes, but you know, this is a story that needs to be told and that hasn't really been told before. And I think it's not very confidence, but I think also I just stopped caring as much what people thought of me. I think when you're very young, a young woman, I think you are always so worried about, you know, being vulnerable and exposing yourself. And I think I, I, I mean, I wrote, I started writing the book when I was like in my mid twenties, I was 24. I mean, I'm 26 now. Glass of water, so. um, sorry. And I think, you know, I, I done therapy by then. And I think I just, yeah, was, didn't care as much about uh, the opinion of others and just went for it really. It's great. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And your confidence also really spills over into the way you write. You talk about the different, how you're trying to bring fragments of story into your story. So you have multiple narrators, you have different forms of writing. So you have the letter from Margaret Thatcher, for example, and you have different tenses based on the narrator, which made for a very interesting and very readable story. But I'm curious about any other considerations you had when making those choices whether it was the number of narrators you had, the tenses you were using, or how much space to give, say, Dal, the younger boy who loses his life, and then he's commenting from above as a ghost, reflecting on his sister in her new life. Yeah, any considerations that you can share with us? Yeah, I think I wanted to leave some things unsaid in the book, and I really wanted I wanted the reader to kind of have a part in the story in some ways and fill in the gaps for themselves. And um, so I think at first I was almost leaving too many things unsaid and uh, leaving too many gaps. And again, that's something that we worked on and we made, we made part two, especially where they're in London, much more vivid and added some things. But I think, and I think also I was cautious that I was writing young characters. And to be honest, I'm not, I'm my reading taste. I don't usually read books that have young characters in the book. I think Anne is, um, the, and the main narrator, she's 16 and she, she turns 18. So I was trying it to write those characters in the way that, that, and I feel like I was writing YA and that I was, you know, that would appeal to, to me if I was, to, if I were just a reader, how would I feel about reading that book? So I had lots of consideration like that. And, and when writing Dao as well, Dao is a, a five-year-old, seven-year-old, <laughs> I can't remember how old Dao is. Anyway, he's a child uh, narrator and he's a ghost. And I think it was hard to find his voice because he's, um, you want to make it so that it, I wanted the chapters to add a bit of lightheartedness and also some sadness because it's very it's very sad but um in a way that didn't feel childish or that didn't feel cringy for lack of a better word so I definitely had all of those things going on in my mind but that's when I'm glad that I had a a support system around me and people that could give me that I could trust to give me feedback on my work. It's interesting that you mentioned the younger characters hadn't occurred to me of course they're very young but to me you write them so well that it didn't occur to me that that might not be your natural home or that it would take you long to find the voice but I'm curious whether in the submissions process whether it's the agent the publisher anyone ever mentioned the potential of it being a young adult novel no I don't think so I think it's it was too grim <laughs> I mean it's too sad to be young adult and I think the writing style probably and I, I I had some agents who wanted me to remove Dow, for example and I had some agents who wanted me to remove all the kind of essay and nonfiction bits and who just wanted the narrative to write. So it was definitely interesting to see all the, the different opinions that people had on what the book should be and so on. But I think, so I, I signed with Matt, my agent at RCW, because we had, I could tell that his vision for the book aligned with, with what I wanted to, the book 
to be like as well and same with my editor great and it's so much richer for that for the variation so i'm glad you kept it i have a question about the length of the book so it's a super readable book it's a nice size but you can easily imagine expanding these different characters either the american gis or jane or kind of expanding and this is also fresh in our mind because we just interviewed a couple of weeks ago, an author who just published like a 900 page <laughs> ridiculous tome, but like super detailed. And he said, it's just, it had to be that long. Just curious about length. Is this just kind of what naturally fell out of you or was there any consideration? Did you consider going bigger or is this part of the editing process? Yeah, I think at first it was shorter than that. <laughs> I don't feel like a book ever needs to be 900 pages. Who's got time for that? <laughs> no. I'll tell Steve. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's great. But um, I just, I think conciseness sometimes can be good. And um, yeah, as I said, I could have, that was kind of the fun part of the book when working on edits with my editors is that I could, um, we could say like, oh, I think maybe in between, is like a puzzle in the way that we're like, oh, maybe in between those two chapters, you could have one other chapter about like their life in London and one chapter where like, they had to fight or something so it was fun to work like that so for me and I I know because I think a lot of the writers that I talked to they were the opposite they had to like scale down and remove some chapters once from it was just like adding more as I went along but um I mean I'm glad that it's the size it's at now because I think before it was just a bit too short and and I think you it wouldn't have made for a satisfying read if it was shorter but um again I think that if I it was that thing about leaving some things left unsaid and I think you trusting the reader to use their own imagination for filling in the things that I didn't say and and um and so on. So yeah. Yeah. Well it's perfect, perfect sizing. <laughs> and you do leave room for the reader and you make it super readable and page turnable. So well done. Thank you. <laughs> you talked about the book being grim. I suppose another way of saying it is there's grief and loss woven throughout the story got the main character and she's living with the loss, the memory of the loss of her family. It haunts her. Dal, the ghost boy, he's really sad about the fact that he can't be with his siblings and play with them. And I suppose he's a wandering soul. And then you've got the main narrator who's in present time, who's looking into the history of her ancestry and feeling a sense of inherited grief. And I've personally had a death in the family. So grief is something that's on my mind. And I found it very cathartic to read your book, actually, because you explore what it means to lose someone and what it might mean to be lost actually on the other side and I wondered if if there were any personal elements in this book because it felt so felt very personal the way you were writing about grief and whether this was a difficult book to write in any way yeah it was definitely hard at some points um as I've said the research and learning about my own history was was hard and knowing that you know I don't know how my grandparents died I don't know how much they suffered when they they died I don't know if they they sank or if they were you know killed by pirates or something so I think learning about the Vietnamese book and and having that sort of you know gap in in my knowledge of my past was hard and then also I think the third part which is in the present day was also hard because that's when it deals with the second generation and with Anne's daughters and again and it was important for me for the characters to be fictional and characters to be fictional and there's Jane in the book who's um a second generation refugee like me and she's them um, and um she's uh, I think it, that was a bit hard because again it was like making her fictional while also using her to tell some of the things that I found to be true and I, I found it hard for example talking to my mom about her story I found it hard to 
come to terms that I was, I think I grew up grieving in some way for my family while not knowing who they were, not feeling if I was really uh, warranted in grieving them and all those different emotions. I think it was hard to put that into paper and also knowing my parents would read it, my mom would read it. And I also felt this huge responsibility to make the book as accurate as possible. And I think that's why I spent a lot of time doing research and because it's I didn't I really would have hated if someone read the book and said like it's really not what it was like at, at the camp or it's really not what it was like moving to the UK and so on. So yeah, it was it was also fun. <laughs> I'm making it back, it was like horrible. Like it was also really fun and cathartic, as you said, and I, I'm so glad that I did it. And it, you know, it taught me a lot about my history, it taught me a lot about processing my own emotions about my history. And um and I've had some readers come up to me recently saying like you know, the story, it's the story of my family and, and telling me, you know, that we came, my mom was from Vietnam and then she moved to the UK. And, and it's been very rewarding and very emotional to hear from other readers as well. Well, it's wonderful to hear. And it really strikes me how much responsibility you've taken on yourself to, to write about this as authentically as you possibly can and to, to be that voice for the community that hasn't been heard. And just a, a note to say that, yes, while there's a lot of grief and loss, it was also hopeful it's actually really wonderful to hear about grief and loss in a way that can actually be uplifting. So thank you for that. I also wanted to talk about heritage and identity. There's an article where you online where you talk about the journey to embracing your Vietnamese heritage. And you said something, a few things that struck me. You said that you're, at least back when you wrote the article, you're saying that your default had been white and you had a disconnect with the other half of your heritage and again, to go a bit personal, identity is something I'm very curious about. I think I disconnected with being my Indian heritage when I was younger. Just I'm not sure why, but as I grew older, I've learned to embrace it. And I'm curious about this process or throughout this process, how your viewpoint has shifted in terms of your identity and heritage. Yes, so I think because I grew up in France and in the US, they're two, you know, mostly quite white countries. And my mom, I think, was quite she didn't want to teach us Vietnamese, for example. She didn't want us to speak Vietnamese because I think there was this this worry she had that if we spoke Vietnamese, then we would have an accent and we wouldn't be well, you know, like I think she just really wanted us to be French and to be accepted at school and so on. And I didn't have a lot of Asian people at my school. I think I was the only, you know, East Southeast Asian for a long time when I was a child at school. And I, so I didn't really grow up with a lot of Vietnamese culture of Vietnamese people around me besides my family so I think a lot of my only gateway through that culture was through my mom and my uncles and food like a lot of child of refugees I think food is is one of the biggest gateway but I think I think it's really growing up I was just becoming more curious about finding myself and I think a lot of like teenagers could relate to that you're just still trying to figure out who you are and and then I started uh, I moved to the UK and I you know I started getting like tension from men and I started getting aware of like yellow fever and, and men who would like try and guess like where I was from and just being a bit creepy and I realized that I was there was a bit of a, a disparity between how I was seeing myself which I was seeing myself mostly white to be honest and and where people would see me as as Asian whether that was men whether it was I did a bit of modeling when I was at uni and I would always get cast as like the token Asian girl on shoots which I always was weird because for me, I, I, yeah, it was a very odd feeling, I think, to realize that people don't see you the way you see yourself. And then I also had a lot of guilt over that because I thought, well, I, like, I'm not doing it on purpose and so on. But so I think I just started 
reading more about my heritage and that's probably when I started researching about Vietnamese boat people and becoming more curious about my my history and I think um and, you know, during COVID there was the you know a, a really big rise in anti-Asian hate and that also I think brought about a lot of, of feelings in me and and um I started reading a lot of books you know Kathy Park Hong wrote this book called uh, Minor Feelings which deals with a lot of in the internal pain that Asians must uh, she, she's the American so Asian Americans but also um Asians in Western countries have so yeah it was quite a long process but now I just feel much more in touch with my Vietnamese heritage and and with being mixed race as well thank you for sharing that yeah thanks Cecile let's turn to the process of writing uh, so you mentioned you wrote this during the pandemic and you were also writing this during a full-time job what did those writing days, it sounds like evenings for you, what did those look like? Day one was with a couple of glasses of wine. <laughs> How did you keep the discipline after that? What did those days look like following? Yeah, it was quite chaotic. I think it was mostly, so it was during the pandemic. So I could wake up like five minutes before going to work in my living room. So I would usually wake up around like nine, nine, 10 or something and then start work around then, really around like nine, nine thirty maybe. And then I would, work all day I would usually finish around six or seven and then I would try and have a break so just have dinner go to the gym or see a friend if I if I could at the time and then I would try and write between like 10 11 p.m until 2 a.m 3 a.m so it was a looking back I don't know how I had the stamina for it I think I had more energy as well like a couple of years ago but um so I I did that for maybe about a, a year I want to say and I wasn't very good at being regular with my writing. So some days I would write like minus a hundred words because I would just like delete something. And then other times I would write like 2000 words. So um, it's something that I'm still learning. I think with, is how to just be better at, at writing every day. But um, yeah, so I think that was my process for a long time. And now I'm not working anymore. So I'm, I'm still learning how to write during the day. But now I'm trying to do reading in the morning because I think it's always so important to read a lot when you're a writer so I read in the morning and then the in the afternoon I try and do like admin or writing hmm. and so did you say it took you about a year to write the first draft of this it took me probably six months intensively but I I had started writing it just I was very slow at writing the first 2,000 words so it took me about six months to write the first 2,000 words and then like six months to write the rest I think so I, I started writing in, um, I would say, summer of 2020. Yeah, I think around summer 2020. And then I I got into the London Writers Awards in 2021. So that's when I started writing more intensively because I had a, a writing group, which gave me more of a structure. And I think, again, like gave me a bit more confidence and just in taking my writing more seriously. So I really wrote more seriously between January 2021 and July 2021. And that's when I signed with my agent, Matt. And then we worked on edits with Matt during August. And then we, we submitted the book to publishers in September of 2021, right before Frankfurt Book Fair. And then we worked on edits with, with the publisher, I think until like, like January 2022, I think. And yeah, and then it was kind of just proofreading and so on after that. I'm curious about those first six months. You said it took you six months to write 2,000 words. <laughs> what would that look like? And was it just that you couldn't crack the nut of it or is it a confidence thing? What were you doing with those 2000 words? I think it's, it was just because I, again, I think it might have something to do with confidence because I just didn't really 
think that it would lead to anything. <laughs> you know, I, I was just more writing front and I didn't have a deadline or anything. And I'm, I'm a bit lazy. You know? <laughs> so I think I was just working with a day job. And then I, it was just so easy for me not to write. And it was a bit scary. It was a bit scary to start that project as well. So um, I think I wrote the first chapter. And then I think I I wrote another like 500 words when I had to submit to London Writers Awards because I, I hadn't enough written enough to submit to them. So I, I'm someone who works really much better under pressure, I think. And I just think I didn't have enough pressure at the time. And I I just, I didn't have any any goals with my writing really at the time. So that's, I think, why I was slower. Mm. I mean, it, it's something we see here and it's, I guess, why we're so excited about what we're building is there's some great power in a group of people and a sense of urgency to say, yes, this matters. And here's a deadline when you should have this done and setting some goals and intentions. So yeah, it's a nice reminder. So thanks for for sharing that. <laughs> How do you think your role as an editor either helped or hindered you in the writing process? You talked about how it helped a little bit with the confidence, but I'm curious, anything else with the craft or the process? Yeah, yeah. I think it was um, helpful in the publishing process because I always, I was, I knew what was going on. And I think for writers, I, I feel quite bad sometimes for writers who don't really know the publishing process. And they, I think that can bring about a lot of anxieties when they don't know, for example, how cover designs work and how the kind of different stages where you have like editing and then you've got line edit, which is more kind of like changing the sentences. And then you've got like copy editing, which is even more precise and you have proofreading. So I think it, it helped that I knew all the different stages of editing, for example. And then I knew the different processes and then you have marketing and publicity worked and so on. I think it added a bit of anxiety when I was writing the book because I would, for example, see a book come on submission to us and I would see a book like struggling to get a, a publisher. And I, and I would think, oh, but that book also has a ghost narrator or that book also talks about like Asian people. <laughs> like just like even like a very vague resemblance to my book. And I would just start freaking out and think maybe my book will also like, you know, not interest anyone. So I think that was kind of the other side of the coin to know too much. And then I think I also definitely, maybe that's also why it took me so long to write the first six 2000 words because I was really editing myself all the time and like because I guess that was my none of my job was to you know be more critical about text and thinking like what should what needs changing so it's something that I was maybe overly doing at the time and I think it can very easily become from a procrastination when you're you know doing too many editing and looking back at your previous chapter instead of just writing really Great advice. You've shared so many little gems throughout this interview so far. Advice for new authors, experienced authors, aspiring authors. Do you have any other advice for anyone starting out either on this process? Maybe they're, they're about to have a book coming out or maybe they still have yet to sign with an agent. Anything you think that new authors or aspiring authors should know? Sure. Yeah, I have lots of advice. <laughs> so I think one of my first advice will be if to anyone that's looking for an agent, I will say take your time to really like have meetings with them and make sure you have conversations and find your the agent that you think whose vision for your book aligns with your book. Because I know lots of friends who sometimes agents will like slide into your DMs and then they'll be like, I really want you to submit to me. And then they'll kind of pressure you for you to sign with them. And I think it's important not to to break under that pressure and to kind of let them see, you know be polite but just say like yeah I'll submit to you when I'm ready and I'll, I'm also submitting to other authors 
and some because it, they, you know uh, agents are very competitive. So yeah, that's one of my advice. I would also say, especially for writers of colors, I think sometimes we can feel like there is an expectation of what we should be writing about or who we should be influenced by. And uh, this is, is something that Ocean Wong told me actually when I, I interviewed him one day and he told me, like, make sure you, you're influenced by whoever you want to be influenced by and that you write whatever you want to write and don't be feel dictated by what you think other people expect of you. And then another, another piece of advice I got when I was on the London Writers Awards, we had a kind of talk similar to this where like previous writers were talking to us and and someone just said like, don't look for shortcuts. Just you have to kind of admit yourself when you start writing a book that it's it's going to be difficult and it, it's going to take a lot of time. And like, maybe you're going to have to give up a part of your social life or you might have to like, you know, sleep a little less when you write your book. And I think it's it was helpful for me to just know that and to just admit to myself from the get-go that it was going to be hard really helpful amen love those as someone who's worked in the industry what are you realistic about when it comes to the publishing process particularly i am thinking sales marketing publicity i think there are a lot of books getting published at the moment and so you won't necessarily be the priority of your editor or publicist or marketer and i mean i've been very lucky because i've had a, a great experience and great team but i think you have to rely on yourself as well to send reminders, emails. You have to, you know, if, if there's a bookshop that you really want to do an event with, don't don't think that your publicist will email them. Or, you know, you, you also have to do a bit of work, I think, to make sure that your book is in the best position possible because all, just because uh, your publishing team will be so busy with other books. So, yeah, I think it's just that. And um, there's also, like, sales, you know, like, it's really hard for debut books at the moment to sell well. <laughs> I think like it just, and it helps. And again, it's um, doing whatever you can and like having, I think for me, it's been really helpful to have on social media, uh, having direct contact with bloggers, for example, bloggers have really supported the, the book and like bookstagrammers, which has been very lovely. And, you know, going to bookshops yourself and presenting yourself well, because I think you shouldn't underestimate the power that that has as well for your book. Um, I want to pick up on what you said about bloggers and your co- direct contact with them. How did that come about? Were you reaching out to them saying that you had a book coming out or how did that relationship start? No, I think I, of course, I stayed my publisher, sent them some copies of the books and then they would tag me on social media. And then I would always, I would just always make sure to like be in touch with them and like tell them, oh, I hope you enjoy the book and, and just be, um, you just engage with them really. And I'm not, I'm like, I'm not saying I'm the only author who knows that it's very it's a very common thing, but I think it's something that bloggers really like and readers really like. I think they love engaging with the authors. But again, it's that thing, it's hard because when you publish a book, you become a bit of a public figure or like the like very like minimum <laughs> amount of a public figure that you can become. But um I think it's also knowing how much you want to share online and how much if you want to be online at all is something I think that writers also need to think about. And also you, you know. You get asked to write a lot of personal essays and feature articles when you, as part of the promotional promotion of your book. And it's also about learning how much of yourself you want to put out there is important as well, I think. Thanks for sharing that. I think these are all different types of problems that a writer might face as they go through the publishing process. Yeah. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about edits. You've spoken about how you've worked with editors on both sides of the pond. So your US editor and your UK editor. And you've mentioned this a little bit already, how the sort of influence they were having. 
But I wonder if you can tell us anything more about how the story improved and was shaped. What else were the editors picking up on that you needed to then work on? So it was really nice because Ruby, my US editor, and Kish, the UK editor, worked really collaboratively together. So I would get their edit on one document, which I guess I think was really nice for me because I always I knew that two people were thinking the same thing. So I was like, oh, I should probably like really take that comment seriously because they both think that. So I think, as I've said, it was really the main editing work I did was adding more about the Antan and Min and making their their life in London just a bit more vivid and and adding some more details. There was a bit of, of reshuffling of the chapters, especially with the Jane character. I think her trajectory, I don't want to like spoil the book for people who haven't read the book, but I think it was really about making her a bit more of a mysterious character at the, at the beginning and then um, making her voice become more vibrant and more confident as the book went along. I think it was some um, big editing work that I did. And then, yeah, I think that were, these were the main things. But yeah, again, I've sort of blocked out of my head. I think it was such like an intense period that I can't remember the details, but I think that these were the main things. Yeah, that makes sense. Having read the book, I I can see how that would have improved thinking about the trajectory of each character and making Jane's voice lighter. I like that. Thank you. I'm curious about like what's next for you. You know, we like to talk about the mountaintop here at London Writers Salon, like what we're aiming for, the next peak. What do you hope for you and for your career as a writer? I have a second book under contract in the U.S., so I have to write a second book. And I'm because I find it quite hard to write when I'm doing like the promotional stuff. And so my book came out last week, so it's been a bit like I've been a bit hyper <laughs> the last like couple of weeks. So I haven't been able to really write as much as I'd like. But I I think this summer I'd really like to kind of have a bit of a quieter summer and and really um, work on book two. And then um, do that. And then, you know, there's lots of writers who become part-time creative writing teachers. So I'd love to maybe do that at some point. I'd like to write more short stories because it's not really something that I've done too much in the past besides for school. And so I think it just kind of developed myself as a writer. And, and you know, maybe one day I'll have to go back to publishing and that's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I, but I think for now, and I'm also just trying to enjoy the moment because you only get to publish your first book once. And kind of trying to take it all in as well. That's a beautiful aspiration. And again, we're so happy we get to celebrate this day with you being long-listed for Women's Prize. Thank you. There's a passage from your book that I would love you to read. It's a beautiful reflection on the role of storytelling in grief. I've just actually sent it to you in the chat because I wasn't organized and didn't send it to you earlier. I would love to hear you read this. Of course. We fill in the gaps. We find stories in every little moment and gather them up readily. We imagine that the unknown is in the worst scenario and we try to make sense of the senseless. We look for the silver linings and the why and the what ifs and what should have been. We try to solve the puzzles, pieces scattered through time and space in the deepest corners of our memories. And what better way is there of doing that? What better way is there of processing our past than by rewriting it? That's beautiful, Cecile. So can you give us a little <laughs> context with that quote? Where does it sit? What's happening? Sure, yeah. It's quite at the end of the book, but I don't think it's a spoiler. <laughs> it's in the last chapter, and I think it's it's the Jane character who's throughout the book has kind of been looking to piece together the story of, of Vietnamese boat people and also, I think, reckon with, with feelings of trauma and grief throughout the book. And I think this is her kind of coming to terms with everything and 
kind of thinking about the role of story that storytelling plays in her journey and about and that has played in her I think yeah coming to terms with her story and then I think I was really interested in the idea of catharsis as well when writing the books I think this is that kind of cathartic moment for her as well yeah it's beautiful and it really I from the bottom of my heart this is such a beautiful book I recommend it thank you there's so many different layers to it there's a depth beautiful storytelling just in terms of telling a story but there's so much more than that as well the deeper levels to this thank you Cecile for your time it's been wonderful we'll be following your career thank you thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast if you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.